Welcome everybody to the She Can Fix It podcast, a monthly podcast consisting of interviews with female surgeons to highlight and empower the women of orthopedic surgery. I'm Alana, and I'm a second year orthopedic surgery resident at Yale. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Anne Van Heest. Dr. Van Heest is a professor, the director of education, and the residency program director for the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Minnesota. She specializes in pediatric hand and upper extremity surgery. She has numerous accolades, but one of her most striking awards is the Parker J. Palmer Courage to Teach Award, which is the highest recognition for an ACGME program director. She is one of only two orthopedic surgery program directors in the country to have ever been awarded this honor. To say Dr. Ann Van Heest is one of the legendary women in orthopedic surgery is simply an understatement. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ann Van Heest. Here with us today, we have Dr. Ann Van Heest um, of the University of Minnesota. Dr. Van Heest, thank you so much for being with us today. I know you have many tasks and obligations, um, and so I do appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Dr. Munger. I really appreciate the opportunity to be part of the She Can Fix It podcast. I think it's so exciting that you are working on uh, reaching out to young women, young surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, orthopedic residents, medical students, and just letting them know what a great occupation orthopedic surgery is. Awesome. Um, well, without further ado, um, I think it would be great um, if our listeners can kind of know who you are. So I was wondering if, you know, you can describe in your own words your background with regards to medical school, residency, fellowship, and beyond, and describe the journey that you had to become an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah, thank you. So uh, I actually was not really thinking about orthopedic surgery as I went through. Honestly, I wasn't even aware that it was an option. (laughs) Um, So I went into Uh, medical school very interested in sports Hmm. so when I was in college I was a rower so I was on the Boston University crew very cool and so I took a year off under my under after my undergraduate uh, medical school and uh, did rowing for a year Hmm. Um, I rowed for national team I got very involved in it and then I continued that into medical school. I'm a triple gopher. So I went to University of Minnesota for medical school residency and then now on faculty. (laughs) Um, I did do my hand fellowship through the Harvard Mm -hmm. uh, system. So the Harvard Hand and Upper Extremity Fellowship. And then I came back to University of Minnesota and I've been on faculty there for 25 years. Wow. Um, That is phenomenal. Did you grow up in the Minnesota area or how did you become you know, as you say, a triple gopher. Yeah, I uh, did grow up in the Minnesota area. um, And so I have lived in Minnesota for most of my life. I've been certainly away for periods of time, but I think that Minnesota is a great state. So that's where I centered my career. Phenomenal. Awesome. Uh, Well done. When did you become, like, when was the moment that you knew you wanted to become an orthopedic surgeon? Like, were there other specialties that you were contemplating, or did you know 
yes, orthopedic surgery is the specialty for me. Um, I did not know that orthopedic surgery was the specialty for me. I, um, I liked a lot of things in medical school. Uh, like I said, I was pretty interested in sports, mm-hmm. and so sports is a little bit of a natural fit with orthopedic surgery. Okay. I uh, did my general surgery at the VA, hmm. and I ask you, actually uh, did cardiovascular surgery. Oh. And I was on my cardiovascular surgery. The uh, fellow and attending let me do a lot of a surgical procedure, and hmm. they let me do... Uh, part of the opening and closing on the chest and I got to tie some stitches and got some real hands-on experience and they they were very encouraging Mm -hmm. so I think like right away there you can see the important roles of males that really affirm your abilities like Mm -hmm. they said you could be a surgeon and so to me that was a really positive affirmation I also was thinking about doing the family practice sports medicine route. Mm -hmm. And when I interviewed for residency, I actually interviewed for both. So I interviewed for family practice sports medicine and I interviewed for orthopedic surgery. And that was kind of the two things that I was deciding between. Hmm. So um, at that time in Minnesota, there were two residencies and one residency went through the match and one residency was outside the match and they offered me a spot outside the match. Oh, wow. So I just took it. Awesome. Very Jumped cool. On board. So that's how I decided. Nice. And, and the affirmation, uh, the chief of the VA and the chief of the residency program there, I did a rotation there as a medical student and he said to me, you could be an orthopedic surgeon, you would be great. And then he offered me a spot. So again, it's really through the advocacy of some very important males, I think there are clearly that uh, it's uh, women in orthopedic surgery is not just to be solved by women, but it also is uh, males participating in that. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, And I think that, you know, a lot of the emphasis in the research talks about, you know, the importance of the female role model um, and I was wondering when you were going through your path in medical school and residency, were there other female surgeons around? I kind of, you know, it's funny as I'm guess I'm looking at, you know, my course and my journey and maybe I'm spoiled at the fact that we have, you know, 14% residents and, you know, the, what is it? 10% faculty. And I don't know, what was it like for you going through your journey? Yeah, so for me and my journey, uh, there were a few other what I would call token women. I was in kind of the stage of token women, and there certainly are residency programs now where there are token women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I, there was uh, two other people ahead of me in my residency program that I interfaced with, and then when I started on faculty, there's one other faculty member two years older than me, and mm. the two of us were what we call the Tukin women, in that there were <laughs> two of us. Um, and so certainly I have had some women, um, but again, a lot of my journey has been advocacy by mm. male faculty members and uh, p- people in a position of offering me residency, offering me faculty positions, offering me fellowship, helping me out in my career have primarily been male. Hmm. 
Wow, that's so interesting. Um, as this is a Women of Ortho podcast, I do want to take a moment to actually talk about the issue of the lack of gender diversity in orthopedic surgery. And just for review for our listeners, I think the 2017 to 2018 academic year, there was 14.7% or something like that um, percent of female residents um, in orthopedic surgery. And I think my question to you, Dr. Van Heest, is why is this important? You know, I know that we talk about increasing the number of women, increasing that percentage. And I think we kind of talk so much about how to do it. And I don't actually think we always talk about why it's important to do it. And so I was wondering if you could lend your expertise as to why it is we should be working to increase gender diversity in orthopedic surgery. Uh, I think there are a number of different reasons we want to increase the diversity of gender in orthopedic surgery. I think for one thing, it really enriches our field. Mm -hmm. So, you know, half of the women in medical school are, half of the students in medical school are female and to not be attracting a certain number of those females into orthopedic surgery, I, I just think it enriches us that we want to have people, um, choose orthopedic surgery. Again, when you look at, you know, just trying to understand the statistics, you know, why are so many people, why are more women choosing urology? I mean, nothing <laughs> against urology, but why would more women choose to go into urology than they go into orthopedic surgery? Why would more women <laughs> want to be neurosurgeons? Again, that's one of the ones that's closer to us, but you know, it certainly can't be a lifestyle issue. It can't be a length of training issue. Mm-hmm. It can't be a subject matter issue um, because I think if you look at neurology, urology, general surgery, those all would, you know, we should be able to quote unquote beat them out. I mean, we should be able to attract yeah. more women to orthopedic surgery. It's a much, in my opinion, you know, it's a better field. We have better patient care experiences. We can really help our patients considerably. And so just to try to understand that problem, I mean, just like you'd solve a patient care problem, you want to look into the issues and research, like, why isn't it happening? What's Mm -hmm. different about our field? No, that's so true. And I think what's so interesting about this issue is the fact that it's been happening for a decade and more, you know, and it seems to be, like you say, like with neurosurgery, um, the number of hours that they're working in, that would kind of lean us away toward thinking maybe it's a lifestyle issue. And um, it's just, it's a very interesting, um, you know, issue that I think that we're still trying to uncover. Um, And Kind of transitioning from that, I do want to talk about your articles that you wrote in JBJS about the uneven distribution of female residents in residency programs. Um, These were two articles that you had. um, And first of all, I want to thank you so much for writing these um, because these were the articles that really inspired me to pursue this research into women in ortho and kind of set me on my path. So I do want to thank you so much for dedicating your time and efforts to publish these two articles. Um, Just for review for our listeners, you basically, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you basically 
examine the number of female residents in all of the ACGME orthopedic surgery program and looked to see the distribution of women in each of these programs and basically separated and was able to identify those programs that had not have any women as well as those that had over 20% of women. Um, and I was wondering if you can kind of talk about your thought process that went into creating this research project. Um, well, maybe I'll tell you a little bit about how I got started on it. Can I would love that. that? Mm-hmm. So um, when I was in residency, um, I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. I had my son when I was a fourth year resident. Wow. And um, again, although my program was uh, very accommodating for me, there was no maternity leave, there was no precedent. Um, I found it that I just felt like that should be able to be part of the process of being a surgeon. And so um, I decided during my fourth year that rather than complain about it, the best thing to do is to go back and try to change it. It's just one of those things. And so I decided that I wanted to go into it to academics. Hmm. And so I was, again, a male uh, leader Mm -hmm. said, offered me a job to come back to the University of Minnesota. I had several different offers and I decided what I, one of the things I'd really like to do is be able to go back and change that. Mm -hmm. you know, you can do, you can only control your own area. And so for me, that was University of Minnesota residency program. And Mm -hmm. I've had great supporters there. There was another female faculty member there. We had had a couple female residents there. So I thought it would be a really great place to start. So um, I did my initial um, faculty work. And then about six or seven years into practice, I became program director. Mm. And so I've been program director for a pretty long time. <laughs> and, uh, and so as a program, as a female program director, I started to realize uh, that you have a lot of uh, influence to be able to help pick out who the next generation is. Mm-hmm. And so um so we started building our program and again you know we have a large selection committee and so it's not just me it's all the individuals that part of our faculty but creating an environment and a culture where we have trained about 25 to 30 percent women for almost 10 to 15 years and so then Mm -hmm. as i progressed along in my role as program director uh, and there then became a national a group of program directors, I realized like I am one of the very few female program directors. Mm-hmm. So there aren't very many people in this role that are able to help influence this and how many people in this role have an interest in it. So right. I I didn't uh, I didn't go into it specifically thinking this is what I was going to research. But again, it's like any research, you make an observation like, boy, there's a couple programs that seem to be training like most of the women. Mm -hmm. And when I go, there's like a number of programs that don't have any women. So it was more to, you know, you kind of make that hypothesis like any research. And then GME track is a national database that all residents in all ACGME accredited programs in the US enter their data. So there was a way to get data mm-hmm. and there was a way to get data every year. And so, 
you know, we decided to do that uh, over our initial uh, five-year period, uh, which was 2004 to 2009. Mm-hmm. And then we decided to uh, repeat that again from 2009 to 2015, 2014. Mm-hmm. So we had two five-year cohorts and we did one initial data and then we just repeated the exact same thing and did a second one to see if there was any change. Yeah. What I absolutely, for me, what was one of the most striking parts of these two articles was that you literally listed the programs. Like, you literally have a list of programs. Um, Like, one table had how many programs did not have any women. And then you had another list of the programs that had consistently more than 20% women in those programs. And I was wondering, when you were publishing that, and, I mean, you knew you were literally going to be publishing the name of the residency programs, was your message more talking to those programs specifically being like, hey, listen, here's the data for you to see, or was your message more toward women to help help them identify those programs that had more gender diversity? Yeah, so a little bit of both. I was kind of hoping that it would be motivational, mm-hmm. uh, both rewarding the programs that have a lot of women and then maybe a little bit of a like, wow, we don't have any women for the programs that don't. But at the same point in time, I think that I've come to realize that different women have different personalities. Mm -hmm. There are certain women who can be kind of the token woman or the front runner, and that takes a different mindset to be that first female that goes into a program or even one of the first two or one of the first five. Uh, it's a lot more groundbreaking, right. but there are some females that thrive in that environment, and there's a lot of females that have done that, and, you know, more power to you if that's who your personality is and how you will thrive in residency. Um, and then there's another group of people that really want and need that supportive environment and that would thrive better in an environment where there's, a, you know, what you might call a more female-friendly or a more... Um, You know, what I try to say is that what I've tried to really work towards is competency-based education. Mm -hmm. So you should be based on your competence as a surgeon, period. It shouldn't matter your gender, your sexual orientation, your race, your religion, the color of your hair, whatever. But if we aren't measuring what it means to be a competent orthopedic surgeon, Mm -hmm. then how do we know that one person should advance and another person shouldn't. Right. So, I, you know, what I've tried to do, I think it creates a gender neutral environment to really work on competency. And so that actually is the majority of my work. The gender portion of it is a sidelight mm-hmm. of it. Um, but I think if we got to a place in our, in our country where we you know, say if you can do X, Y, and Z, then you can be a surgeon, then anybody who can do X, Y, and Z can become a surgeon, and that it creates a very Mm -hmm. competency-based environment, Mm -hmm. Um, instead of being, uh, oh, he's my really good friend, and he's a good guy, and so he'll be an orthopedic surgeon. So I think that's one of the things that contributes to the um, culture, is whether you have a culture that's very competency-based, or a culture that's more kind of who's friends with who based. Hmm. So most of my work um, since then and as part of this 
has been trying to get national organizations to have residency programs be more competency-based. Yeah. And I do want to talk a little bit about your role as program director because you, well, first of all, you're one of the you know, rare breeds um, that we have in orthopedic surgery in that you are a professor at the University of Minnesota. A lot of the, for some of our listeners, um, in academic position, you can be assistant professor, associate professor, and professor, and the more time you spend in academic medicine, the more you climb up the ladder in order to get to the role of professor. So first of all, congratulations on that. And I know that must have just taken so many years and hard work. And additionally, you have been the program director for over 15 years. Um, uh, and you also won the Parker J. Palmer Courage to Teach Award, which is the highest recognition for an ACGME program director. So first of all, congratulations on that award. What, how far into your um, tenure as program director did you receive that award? Um, I received that award a little after 10 years yeah. as program director. So that was really an exciting thing. It was very, you know, my residents nominated me for that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it was a really um, great honor um, that they put me up for that and that I was chosen. Again, there's only been two orthopedic surgeons that have ever been chosen for that award. Wow. Um, it's primarily tends to be, uh, you know, the internal medicine and pediatric and non non-surgical. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really great thing for orthopedic surgery as well. Right. What do you think it is that, I mean, I know this might be an odd question, but why do you think that your residents, were they just so appreciative of the culture that you created? Or what is it that you think that you've been able to do at the University of Minnesota that might be unique? And maybe this is, you know, touching on the things that you've, know, you've said before with regard to the culture that you've created at your program. Well, um, again, I have tried to really base things on competency-based. Mm -hmm. So... Um, when you talked a little bit about getting promoted, you know, when I first started as a uh, as an ac in in academics, um, we have a tenure track and a non tenure track, and I just thought, you know, I should go for tenure track, mm -hmm. right? Because the more that you can document your competence as you go through then the less that people can question you, True. you know, so it's kind of along the lines as you have to work twice as hard to be just as good. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was true. And maybe I'm a product of the fact that I was one of the first women to go through. So I really wanted to prove kind of twice as hard as, you know, to work twice as hard to be just as good. But I made a decision um, pretty early in my academics that, you know, some female orthopedic surgeons uh, have had really great careers actually studying like gender differences within ortho hmm. but I decided that I wanted to not do that so I um, based my um, academic advancement on hand surgery and mm -hmm. then specifically on pediatric hand surgery so that was at a time when hand surgery was a super well accepted specialty but the subspecialty of pediatric hand surgery wasn't mm -hmm. as well um, understood or kind of subspecialized. And so, again, I have a lot of national and international colleagues that worked really hard on that subspecialization for pediatric hand surgery. Mm -hmm. So, again, that was the majority of what I 
um, tried to use what I researched and developed as part of my uh, career advancement. Mm -hmm. And then my second thing was education. And so just trying to help with this competency-based education. And so I think um, by having uh, an environment where you know, it's pretty clear what the expectations are. And when residents meet those expectations that they, uh, you know, have a feeling of accomplishment. And again, not based on gender, not based on who they are, but based on what they did, which is the same way that I went through my academic advancement. Hmm. You know, it's based on what I did and how many articles I published and, you know, those types of things as I went through. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, that that's an important part of creating an environment that's really fair, nice. you know, is being able to let people uh, advance based on their merits. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. Um, I do want to take a moment to talk about, you know, the craft of orthopedic surgery. And you do mention the fact um, that you are a pediatric hand surgeon, which is very probably one of the more unique specialties in orthopedic surgery. So I was hoping you could kind of describe what it is that a pediatric hand surgeon does and how you first became interested in pediatric hand. What is it that attracted you to that subspecialty? So like I mentioned previously, I got into orthopedic surgery because of my interest in sports. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that'll be great to be a sports surgeon. But as I went through my ortho rotations and everyone has different experiences, but when I was in sports clinic, the majority of people were very fit people who ran marathons or very, you know, high level activities. And when they had a torn meniscus and they couldn't run anymore, they had to cut down on their mileage were very, you know, that was your main job was to try to keep them to those very high levels. And when I did my pediatric rotation, I took care of one particular child who had arthrogryposis. Hmm. And this is a child who can barely walk, you know, who can, you know, has to cross their hands over to get their food to their mouth. But again, incredible kid, incredibly smart, incredibly articulate, just had great school credentials and other types of activities. And I just thought, you know, why not help these kids who are, you know, do so much with so little. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's where I made a career choice Um, you know, kind of between my third and fourth year where I decided that, uh, you know, the advantage of hand surgeries, I could still do some sports, you know, but I could also do this pediatric hand surgery. And then as I got further in my career, I specialized more and more into the pediatric hand, but I still help take care of our sports teams at University of Minnesota. So it still kind of provides me with that opportunity as well. Phenomenal. Um, how is it that you have, you know, or over the course of your career, how is it that you uh, perfected your surgical skills or at least tried to become a better surgeon? Were those techniques that you had learned when you were in residency or were there things that you kind of learned along the way of how to make sure that you continued to be the best surgeon that you could be? Yeah, so uh, I truly, you know, believe it is lifelong learning. Um, And so that's a really important part of being a surgeon. Um, And one of the questions that I still think of now is, um, you know, 
how hard you have to work to be a really good surgeon. Um, you know, at that time we had no duty hours, mm-hmm. uh, hand fellowship year. There were two of us. We were on call every other night and we, we were backup call for the other person on the other night. Mm. Um, I think we worked too hard. Um, and then when I first started on faculty, I took a lot of call and I took a lot of hand call at a level one trauma center. Oh, wow. I took a week every month. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, I got a lot of surgical experience. I think I probably got too much. I, you know, really hope. And one of the things has been to not have to work that hard. Mm. I think, um, you know, we should be able to teach residents how to be surgeons working less than 120 hours a week. I think probably less than 80 hours a week. And that's kind of this whole education theme is, you know, how can we teach people how to be surgeons without having them work these ridiculous hours and Mm -hmm. do these ridiculous cases. But that's what I did in that era is, you know, you operated a lot and then you, you know, sought consultation and, you know, I had a really good role models. Jim House is a hand surgeon that was here at the university and he was retiring and I scrubbed a lot of two surgeon cases and, and learned a lot from my elders. Barry Simmons was my fellowship program director, and he was fantastic, um, really helped me with my hand surgery skills. So, you know, it's constant learning, constant asking, constant researching, mm-hmm. constant keeping up on um, what's happening, because it's a growing field, and pediatric hand surgery is great. Mm-hmm. So, um, you do talk about the duty hours, um, and I wanted to kind of ask you, kind of just to go into it a little bit about whether or not you think that we're training a different type of surgeon because of the fact that we have these duty hour restrictions. You know, I think that one of the things that you learn when you are pushed to your limits, when you're at that hour 90, um, is that you are put under stress, but you learn to deal with that stress and you learn how to the most important part of cases at that moment of fatigue. Do you think that because of these duty hour limits, we're losing that in our residency education? Uh, I'm not sure that it's best patient care to really have uh, physicians in general working 80, 100, 120 hours a week. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a national question and it's a big issue. Uh, I'm I don't think people need to work 100 hours to learn how to be a good surgeon. Mm -hmm. I think that's been a good change. But then I do think uh, as part of that, we have to learn how to educate our residents better. Right. You know, more efficiently. And then really, like I, I mean, at that time, you know, we were doing a lot of hospitalist kind of things. I mean, we, I took overnight call every third to fourth night Mm -hmm. and we were up, you know, doing our own EKGs, doing our own IV sticks. I mean, doing you know, things that hospitalists should do and, uh, you know, lab techs should do. And so I think, um, you know, if you're going to fly a fighter pilot jet, you should probably train to fly the fighter pilot jet. You don't have to train how to do all these other things that you'll never really learn. So I think as part of cutting back the duty hours, you have to at the same time make a more not just efficient system, but a more focused system. Like what does an orthopedic surgeon really need to know? Right. What do they really need to be good at? And then let's teach them that. Let's teach it to them in the lab. Let's teach it to them in the OR. Let's test them at it. 
and then let's see if they know it. And then if they know it, they can go to the next building block. So that kind of gets to this competency-based education hmm. on trying to focus the education on what people are learning to be competent in mm-hmm. and then advancing people through the system. Instead of just, uh, you know, the way you learn how to be an orthopedic surgeon is you work 120 hours a week for five years and then you're good. Right. You know, right. I don't think that's really the best formula and I don't think that's really the best patient care. So I think it's still working with what, you know, it's a work in progress mm-hmm. to kind of, to try to figure out if we train people between 40 and 80 hours a week, how do we train them? And then how do we make sure we know they're well-trained? Right. That's been kind of my work on the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery has been, you know, how do we really know that they should be board certified? Correct. How do we know that they're competent orthopedic surgeons? Hmm. Awesome. Um, well, this is a women in ortho podcast, and I think that there's been a lot more discussions about women in orthopedic surgery and the lack of gender diversity. Um, and I was hoping if I could ask what your outlook is on this issue. Are you hopeful? Are you kind of reluctant about where this is going to go? And I was wondering kind of what your thought processes with regard to the lack of gender diversity in our field? I think that the next generation of women is awesome. <laughs> so I think the younger generation of women is just going to bring it on. <laughs> I mean, I think they, you know, aren't accepting of kind of some of the old systems. Mm-hmm. I think they'll help push the limits. I think we just have to attract women enough into ortho so that we have people in the system to help affect change. But I'm super excited about people like yourself who are interested in putting together a She Can Fix It podcast Mm. about people who who want to expand the system and make it better and make it more diverse and make it more welcome to attract more females. I think if you grow up in the present day and age and you do high school sports and college sports and you're smart and you're going to be a professional. I want those women to want to choose ortho. Mm -hmm. And so I think we really want to be attractive to those women. And then once they're in ortho, I think that we're going to have a real expansion and that this fact that we've been stuck between 14 and 15 percent for a decade is yeah. going to go away yeah i just don't know when it's going to explode but i know it's going to happen i know i know i'm excited i'm very excited um well dr van heest i know you are very busy and so i do want to kind of get to my last segment which is a set of questions that i ask every single surgeon um that uh is coming onto the podcast and so my first question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? So my favorite surgical procedure is index policization. So for those of you who don't know, uh, there are children that are born with no thumbs. And so many of these children will have four fingers and no thumb. And so an index policization is to take the index finger and surgically move it into the position of the thumb. And it it's a fairly complicated procedure, but after you've done it a number of times, uh, you can become uh, efficient at doing that procedure and proficient about uh, making it so it really does become a thumb. And then it's great as I have followed these kids into now teenagehood and older, mm-hmm. how that really can 
uh, be a great uh, improvement in their quality of life by having a thumb instead of just four fingers. Awesome. That's, that's phenomenal. Um, what are your go-to topics for grand round presentations? Uh, there's basically two things I like to talk about. One thing is pediatric hand surgery. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the second thing is orthopedic education. Hmm. So uh, lately, probably my biggest one has been advancing in, in orthopedic education, where we are now and where we want to be 10 years from now. Awesome. Very cool. Um, number three is what is your favorite memory slash story as an orthopedic surgeon? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. I, um, you know... It's a tricky one, I know, I've... It's a little bit tricky because <laughs> I have a lot of memories and I have a lot of really good memories and I have a lot of really challenging memories. Sometimes you can feel like you're living the dream and other times you can feel like uh, the day couldn't go any more difficult. Right. Uh, but probably, um, you know, one of my things that really motivates me or keeps me going is um, graduation day. Mm. So... Um, for me, one of my favorite um, memories is just graduation day when you've been working with residents for five years. They came in as a medical student. They were kind of naive. They didn't have skills. They were scared. And then they graduate and they're competent and will be board certified and are leaders and are independent thinkers and really great orthopedic surgeons. So mm -hmm. for me, that's just a great memory almost every year as our residents graduate and go out into practice. Wow. Ah, amazing. Um, I know that we do spend a lot of time in the hospital, but what are your favorite activities to do outside the operating room and outside of the concrete walls of the hospital? Yeah, so um, one of the things I've been really lucky for and that I've really worked on is you know, trying to kind of live a normal life, so right. to speak. So I'm a mom. I have two kids. Uh, my kids are now uh, 28 and 20 years old. Wow. And so, you know, I've enjoyed all the stages of their growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been able to stay active myself. I just finished playing tennis. I play in a tennis league. <laughs> uh, my kids play tennis. My husband plays tennis. Um, so I really enjoy that. Uh, and my husband and I like to travel. And so we've had some really great trips as families. We've mm. um, been able to uh, go to Wimbledon. That's on TV right now. Wow. So that's a super oh. fun thing that we've done, gone mm. to England and seen that. We've gone to the French Open. So um, many of these things I think are uh, activities I've been able to enjoy, mm -hmm. uh, just like many uh, parents. I know. What I love is the way that you said that you work on that, because I think that's a lot of something that a lot of, but no, I mean, it's so true, right? In the sense that I think it, it takes time to dedicate to that. And I think that's kind of something that I've found many medical students ask me is like, how do you have a personal life? And I think it's I think you said it perfectly, and it's something that you dedicate time to it. You make a conscious effort to make sure that you're doing that. So I love that you uh, mentioned that uh, in your answer. Uh, question number five for you is, what are your future goals slash projects that you're working on right now or hope to work on? 
So I'm presently on the board of directors for the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. Mm. And one of my big goals uh, for that is to uh, try to help develop a national system mm-hmm. uh, for orthopedic education for what we call knowledge, skills, and behavior. So medical knowledge, improving the OITEs mm-hmm. as part of going towards part one boards. Uh, skills, meaning surgical skills and assessing people's competency, like what surgeries do you need to know to be an orthopedic surgeon? Does everyone have to be able to do an ankle fracture? Does everyone have to be able to do, you know, what what procedures should every orthopedic surgeon be able to do and what are subspecialty procedures? Mm -hmm. And then behavior is the professionalism part and making sure that we all understand that it's a lifelong learning. So for uh, orthopedic Uh, for board of directors on the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery, it's a 10-year commitment. And I'm in year four, and so those are some of my goals uh, during my uh, 10-year time period on the board. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Goodness, 10 years, that's quite a commitment. 10 years, yeah, it is. Oh, gosh. Um, My last question for you before I let you go is what advice do you have for female orthopedic surgeons and female orthopedic surgeons in training? I would say enjoy the ride. I mean, I think it's uh, orthopedic surgery is the best occupation. I think if you can, you know, savor the moments and, you know, really take uh, time to be intentional Mm -hmm. so that you can understand each step that you're going through and enjoy it and not just look forward to the day when something else happens. Um, you know, enjoy your first year of residency. I mean, <laughs> it's not your second year, then enjoy your second year and right. then enjoy your third year. And there's certain things that you learn in each year. And so I think like congratulating yourself when you've learned how to close a wound mm-hmm. and you've learned how to, you know, apply a plate or drill drill holes without plunging or, you know, take each one of those steps and then really, you know, savor the moment and congratulate yourself and not just look to what you don't know or what's down the line, Mm -hmm. you know, and then um, continue to do that through your career so that you're mindful of where you are right now and grateful for the fact that you're able to um, be an orthopedic surgeon. Awesome. Well done. Well, Dr. Van Hees, thank you so much for being with us today. I know you are very busy and have many things to do, so I really do appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk with us. Well, Dr. Munger, I want to congratulate you on putting together this podcast. I think it's a great way to reach the young women in this country who are going to help us Mm -hmm. uh, make orthopedic surgery a more gender diverse profession. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Ann Van Heest, and we hope to bring you more great interviews on the She Can Fix It podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or YouTube. You can find us on the web at shecanfixitpod.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at shecanfixitpod. References for this podcast include the two articles published in JBJS. The first article is entitled The Uneven Distribution of Women in Orthopedic Surgery Residency Training Programs in the United States. 
It was published in the January 2012 edition of JBJS. The second article is entitled, A Five-Year Update on the Uneven Distribution of Women in Orthopedic Surgery Residency Training Programs in the United States. It was published in the August 2016 edition of JBJS. Finally, I want to say thank you to all the listeners who are taking the time to listen to our podcast. I know we are all very busy people, so I do sincerely appreciate it. Please subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please also spread the word. Tell your friends, your mentors, your medical students. If you have any questions or would like to hear a friend, mentor, legend on this podcast, please feel free to email us at shecanfixitpod at gmail.com. I would like to take a moment to thank those who helped to make this podcast possible. A sincere thank you to Dr. Mary O'Connor for her mentorship in creating this podcast. Thank you to the amazing attendings here at Yale. Dr. Carrie Swigert, Dr. Adrian Sochi, Dr. Elizabeth Gardner, and Dr. Andy Halim for being exemplary role models for us. And finally, many, many thanks to my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vanny Kirk, without whom this podcast could not be possible. <laughs> <laughs>